0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest in this episode is Judith Circus, the author of Sex, Law, and Sovereignty in French Algeria, 1830 to 1930. And the book was published by Cornell University Press in 2019. Hi there, Judith. Hi, Roxanne. I am so delighted and grateful that you're able to speak with me today. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: I've been looking forward to this for quite some time.
0: Yeah, me too. So, Judith, before we get started, could you just let us know how you're doing, where you are, how the last year, I guess, of global pandemic has been treating you? I can't complain. I'm uh, in Central New Jersey, where it's
1: uh, quiet, and there are lots of places to go for long walks. So, (laughs) I adopted the uh, the sourdough. Uh, craze and, (laughs) um, you know, make, uh, make bread every, every week. So there's that, that good that's come of it.
0: So, I mean, we're going to talk about all sorts of things, but, you know, I always ask authors how they originally became interested in working on France and in your case on France and Algeria. So how do you want to get us there? Whatever you want to tell us about your interest and where it, it came from. Well,
1: how France? I guess it was really uh, I was never um, I would say uh, francophile from the from the start. I was not driven by uh, a kind of you know fantasy or passion for things French. I was more when I was in college uh, at Brown uh, at the height of uh, the moment of. French theory, and mm. um, began you know, reading and studying. Foucault, um, amongst others, was obviously a, a major influence on me and my work. And mm-hmm. I guess it really just was interested in delving deeper, both into uh, the history of French thinkers and also the contexts that they worked on. And uh, in particular, uh, developing uh, an interest in feminism and history of sexuality, which was uh, part of the, the strong connection to, to Foucault. Mm-hmm. Already in uh, college, was uh, working on you know topics on the history of sexuality and wrote an undergraduate thesis on uh, working class women's sexuality and hysteria, mm-hmm. and then went to graduate school in intellectual history, uh, seeking to continue to do that kind of work, um, kind of at the intersection between theoretically informed approaches to uh, historical work and working on questions of bodies, uh, sexualities, difference, Uh, religion, and race. Ultimately, the dissertation and first book that I wrote uh, was about sex and uh, secularism, focusing on the uh, masculinity of citizenship in the early first half of the Third Republic. And uh, in that work had a brief discussion of efforts to bring secularized schooling or secular schools to Algeria and uh, essentially happened upon a whole kind of world of discussion surrounding the problem of Muslim law in relationship to French secular principles uh, that revealed an intense focus on and fascination with the dimensions or dynamics of Muslim family law. And Uh I just sort of realized that there was uh, an immense archive that had really, up until this was, you know, um, I guess in the late, late 2000s, um, uh, not really been uh, mined. And that was sort of what got me started uh, on my way.
0: The first sentence of, well, the introduction, Judith, really, it's an amazing first sentence. The French conquest of Algeria was sexualized from the outset. So just to start off, I guess I wanna ask you to kind of tease that out for us a bit. Like, what what do you mean by that and how does that kind of set a, a, a keynote, I guess, for the, the rest of the book?
1: Well, my interest in framing the introduction in those terms was to suggest the extent to which this is, a, a story with which we're sort of already familiar Um, given all of the, you know, decades of work informed by feminist kind of discussions of Orientalism, Mm -hmm. the Orientalist imaginary that informed colonial projects of uh, conquest and occupation. And as I describe, um, you know, I found uh, actually at the very end of uh, my research, a whole trove of cartoons or, uh, you know, lithographs, caricatures Mm. uh, depicting the conquest in explicitly sexualized terms. French soldiers arriving in Algiers, invading uh, these phantasmatic uh, harems and uh, tearing uh, Algerian women from their interior into the exterior they uh, really rendered explicit the extent to which this was a kind of founding fantasy, right? That the conquest of Algeria would be a conquest of uh, its women mm. and and on some level, you know as I said, uh, this is a trope with which we're familiar um, based on generations of, of uh, valuable scholarship uh, done by feminist post-colonial theorists and uh, historians, especially of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. What I was interested in exploring further, was how these fantasies uh, also uh, played themselves out uh, in the domain of law. The passage of the initial legal framework of colonization, um, especially uh, starting uh, in uh, 1834, was on some level meant to keep in check some of the most uh, violent uh, excesses, at least in theory. Of course, uh, in practice, uh, things went differently. But nonetheless also entailed a certain sexualized fantasy, Mm -hmm. uh, namely that uh, the legal organization uh, of the colony would um, uh, protect uh, the sanctity or imagined uh, sanctity. Of uh, the uh, uh, the Muslim uh, or Algerian interior, even as it helped to uh, organize and uh, facilitate the transfer of property uh, from uh, Algerians uh, to the French, right? So we have a kind yeah. of uh, founding a, a founding violence that uh, and a founding sexualized violence that is then uh, you know transformed and uh, stabilized in the, uh, the legal regime of uh, distinct and separate uh, jurisdictions uh, for uh, French and European, Muslim, uh, Algerian, and uh, Jew beginning in
0: 1834. Yeah. Just to sort of pick up on what you just said, Judith, law is, well, it's one of those words that's like singular, plural, it holds so much when you use it. And that in this context in particular, the context of this first century of colonialism in Algeria, what you're dealing with in the book is multiple systems of law, uh, you know, an allegedly universal French law that isn't, of course, not universal even in the context of France, and it's certainly not in the context of Algeria, changes in the law over the course of that hundred year period, and then the relationship between French law and Muslim law. Could you talk a little bit about? You know, the challenge of sorting that out and juggling that as a, as a researcher and a, and a writer in this project?
1: Yeah, especially since uh, before working on this project, I really had not uh, cast myself or understood myself uh, as a legal historian. My first book while focused on citizenship was not um, I mean it was in a sense about law but in a kind of very you know broad it was about the kind of you know ideas that subtended the uh, development of uh, republican legal principles uh, surrounding citizenship but it did not study uh, law and legal cases in detail so that was really a significant innovation uh, for me um, Mm -hmm. and a major challenge. And in a sense, I had to teach myself that kind of, you know, history and practice of French colonial law, which is basically what, uh, you know, over the course of the 10 years that I spent, you know, researching and writing the book is what I did. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have access, uh, to the, um, uh, major legal digests of colonial law and jurisprudence in, in Algeria uh, before they were all digitized and was able to literally page through them in order to track the de- you know, development of, uh, of colonial law. Mm-hmm. The book is about the colonial legal archive. And I uh, absolutely immersed myself in it in order to attempt to understand both the facts and the fantasies on which its development was based and really looking at the conflicts and contests that motivated its consolidation from the outset.
0: At some level, Judith, the book is really pursuing the relationship and the kind of forced connections and segregation of, you know, land and property law on the one hand, and and the entities of land and property, and then these, you know, gendered bodies and persons on the other hand, whether we're talking about the gendered bodies and persons of settlers or of indigenous Algerians. So could you talk a little bit about that, relationship between land and bodies and how you think of that as a kind of theme that runs throughout the project? Yes, uh,
1: because that really for me is the um, kind of crucial hinge and insight uh, around which the whole of the book is organized. Mm -hmm. Um, So as as I mentioned at the outset, I really came to the project after finding these just, you know, Remarkable archive of uh, discourse, a discernible fascination uh, with the um, kind of sexualized character of Muslim family law, especially in the 1870s and 1880s, which was the period uh, in the first book that I discussed where their efforts to bring secularized schooling Mm-hmm. To Algeria and the whole debate surrounding whether or not it would be feasible summoned um, the question or the problem of the Muslim uh, family and family law and its protections on polygamy, forced marriage, and repudiation, which is this kind of uh, triplet of tropes that are used to characterize the excesses, the sexualized excesses of Muslim family law that just return uh, repeatedly, uh, you know, and in certain ways to th- to this day. Mm -hmm. So as I went back into the archive of uh, discussions of colonial law and jurisprudence, I tried to trace the genealogy of that fascination. Mm. And what I realized going back in time before the 1870s was that earlier discussions of polygamy were not focused exclusively on either its religious character or its exclusive connection to fantasy of the family, but it was also bound up with questions about the law regulating Algerian land. Mm-hmm. Part of what I'm trying to trace in the book is how did um, the idea of the kind of difference of Muslim law come to be focused on the family, given the fact that Muslim law, uh, as it you know, operated in uh, Algeria and elsewhere prior to the arrival of the French dealt with every aspect of life, right? So how, in a sense, did Muslim law as family law uh, emerge as an imagined distinct body of law? Mm -hmm. What I was able to trace was uh, the emergence of what uh, historians who work on the history of colonial law are uh, familiar with it, which is to say the category of Muslim personal status,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: Which, uh, in a lot of the important, uh, you know, existing literature on the history of French Algeria or colonial Algeria and other uh french uh colonial entities and uh bodies of law right is the domain of law that is uh devoted to um marriage divorce uh inheritance right so really focused on the on the family um mm-hmm. and what i learned from my research was that uh while this is first of all a um Uh, a French legal category, not a uh, Islamic or Muslim law category, Mm -hmm. right? It's derived from uh, Roman law and had uh, historically been important, uh, particularly in uh, French Ancien Régime law, um, right? It was used to manage uh, the kind of legal pluralism in uh, Ancien Régime France of Normandy custom uh, versus uh, civil law in the South, for example, or the custom of Paris. Uh, and all of this was, at least in theory, done away. I mean, the revolution and then cemented by the civil code, right? According to which all French nationals are supposed to have a shared personal status, uh, which is to say French nationality, right, mm-hmm. which they carry on their persons uh, everywhere that they uh, that they travel. Right. So mm-hmm. the problem introduced by Algerian co- the conquest and colonization was. How to manage different uh, different bodies uh, of law? At least initially, Muslim law, starting in you know 1834, you know, comprised all domains of law with the exception uh, of uh, criminal law. Right? So you know, property uh, or landed property, and uh, as well as marriage, would hmm. be regulated by Muslim law. But uh, over the course of the um, the following decades, and this is part of what I do trace in the in the first. Uh, three chapters of the book, especially with uh, increasing efforts to develop civilian settlement, uh, Muslim law comes to be seen as a greater and greater obstacle to the um, uh, projects of settlement. Um, and so there is a push, in the, particular on the part of civilian settlers, uh, to at least for those um, domains uh, or those territories that were particularly desirable for settlement. To transform the legal character of the land uh, in order to place it under French legal jurisdiction.
0: Yeah, I think one of the ways that you say that—that's that—I found really sort of clear and compelling—is when you somewhere, <laughs> and and you reiterate this at different points that, you know, that the French sought to assimilate Algerian land but not Algerians.
1: Yes, and I think that the frequent uh, characterization of the. Um, the nature of French uh, uh, colonialism, especially uh, in the kind of you know facile opposition between, for example, uh, French and British colonial approaches is the French are assimilationist. Uh-huh. Well, yes, the French were absolutely assimilationist uh, in Algeria, but really what they cared about Frenchifying was the land. And literally that was the language that they used. right? So the major piece of land reform legislation that I study, Um, the Varnier Law from 1873, this is the way in which it was imagined, was that the project was to make the land French while keeping the people who lived on it and owned it um, before they were uh, expropriated. And the law was in fact designed to achieve their expropriation, would remain uh, Muslims. And uh, despite the supposed avenues opened up uh, by the uh, 1865 law, um, the Senate is consult that uh, created pathways to citizenship. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the, the, the structure of the law and the disincentives to actually becoming French uh, were so many that, uh, in, indeed, the, the real project was was to Frenchify the land and mm-hmm. uh, leave the, the the people who owned it um, as Muslim.
0: It's one of the most fascinating things about the book for me, Judith, that you you know not only illuminate that distinction between law as it laws as they apply to property and as they apply to bodies and persons, but that you are able to explain and show how the history of that contradictory but totally um, beneficial, at least for for French settlers and, and, and the French, holding of or claiming simultaneously of a respect for the difference of The Muslim family, you know, marriage, uh, relationships between men and women, all of these things, while also uh, seeing and holding the Muslim family and all of those things in, in, in a pretty serious kind of disdain over time. Right, they claim a,
1: a language of protection and preservation, which as the, and this is part of the the kind of founding fantasy that I'm demonstrating is operating from the outset when we were you know talking about the you know the sexualized from the outset that there were certain fantasies mm-hmm. about the Muslim family that are operating from the outset, and that that continues to inform the vision of the uh, Muslim family that is purportedly being protected um uh even um uh even as it remains also a, a, a source of um uh disdain or contempt uh and indeed you know kind of pathologization uh mm-hmm. and uh, locus of imagined excess and perversion right yeah. so um and and part of what I try to demonstrate. Is um, the kind of projective dimensions uh, of that um, uh, that vision, right? So that there's a, a you know, and the, there's a kind of fantasy of the, the the patriarchal excess of the Muslim family that is always also shared by um, the the jurists who are uh, uh, writing about it right uh-huh. so they and they you know you know kind of imagine themselves into the position of the muslim patriarch allow themselves to indulge in that uh, fantasy and yet also uh, celebrate themselves or uh, valorize themselves for in a sense not being that that figure uh-huh. right so they they get to both indulge in the you know in the in the fantasy uh, and um, uh, and condemn it at the same time, and that that sort of Janus-faced uh, structure is internal to the you know dynamic or operation uh, of the law itself.
0: Yeah, I right. mean, one of the things that's so exciting about what you're doing here, and you and you point this out in different ways throughout the project, is that you know it makes sense uh, a certain kind of sense that all of this is about. Um, I think you know. You say like material, political gain, like conquest is enabled by French law and and these distinctions and differences that are maintained over the hundred year period that the that the book covers, and then even after that in different ways, and that land grabbing for settlement, like all of that, has a logic to it that um, and that 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 makes a certain kind of sense, but that there that it isn't just about. Uh, material and political gain that it's that there's this affective dimension, this psychological dimension and an emotional dimension to to what's happening here in this history that you're exploring. Um, could you say a little bit about how you kind of bring those things together, this study of this kind of material interests and investments with the affective investments?
1: Yes. Uh, Thank you for that question, because it is um, that's another kind of core insight and project of the book is to think those two things together. Right. Mm -hmm. So as I say in the introduction, I mean, it is impossible to write the history of the colonization of Algeria without foregrounding the settler colonial project you know, and I make that clear from the outset, right, that, that the design of the legal system by its author, Justin DeHals, is to facilitate uh, land transactions, right, and, hmm. you know, arrive at in the most efficient and effective uh, way at facilitating uh, land transfer, right, and that the, the idea is that the protection of the family Um, and and patriarchal right is uh, initially going to be the way to achieve that end. The rapaciousness of the uh, soldier, right, is both embarrassing to the French and ineffective, right? So again, it's impossible to write this history without uh, foregrounding that drive and interest behind the settler colonial project. Mm
0: -hmm. At the
1: same time, um, I found that uh, beginning with that thought or premise could not adequately explain or help us to understand the fascination uh, and focus on uh, the imagined you know pleasures and perversions of the patriarchal Muslim family.
0: Just to kind of follow up on that, like to make it real explicit, part of what you're doing in this book um, that I think is really compelling and, and, and exciting is, you know, bringing psychoanalytic concepts and ways of thinking to the study of colonialism and law in this period. And so words have already come up like phantasmatic and kind of uh, pleasure of, uh, you know, male French jurists fantasizing about the patriarchal Muslim um, heads of families but could you talk a little bit about that sort of methodological choice and move to, to read this history through psychoanalysis to a certain extent and through this Lacanian notion of extimacy, maybe even tell us what extimacy is?
1: One of the things that I became you know, kind of troubled and fascinated by was how to account for dynamics of repetition across uh Story of continuity, mm. right? And how to understand uh, the um, the intense fascination and fixation that uh, jurists, as well as you know, artists and literary figures, have with the um, uh, patriarchal imaginary and you know, pleasure, excess, and violence uh, that is uh, imagined uh, realm of uh, Muslim. Personal status or or family law, and and this was really my kind of sources <laughs> speaking to me because I just you know found the you know repetition of the fascination with polygamy, with uh, forced marriage, repudiation is seen as a um, a kind of an extension of uh, of polygamy that uh, revealed a kind of uh, projective desire that was in excess of something that could be simply uh, described as desired for land. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the ways in which this becomes uh, uh, clarified is in particular in accounts of why it would be unfair or unjust for Muslim men, you know, so Muslim Algerian men who are allowed to maintain their personal uh, status, and over and over again, you have public officials, politicians, and jurists essentially saying that it would be unfair for men to be at once uh, polygamous and have full rights as citizens. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that on some level they would be getting access to an imagined excess of. Uh, sexual pleasure, that Frenchmen would be in some way denied because of the strictures of monogamy written into the civil code. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is what I describe as the, the dynamic of extimacy in which the kind of transgressive, um, you know, imagination of Uh, sexual pleasure, of an excessive sexual pleasure, or jouissance, is projected onto uh, this other who, you know, is imagined to uh, both have access to more, but who also must be, uh, you know, disdained and hated for that very same reason.
0: What can you tell us, Judith, about the thinking behind the you know, the structure of the book through its, I mean, there's an introduction, eight chapters, an epilogue, and you're tracking this history over the first hundred years of French colonialism in Algeria. And at the same time, the different chapters of the book are taking up different aspects of colonial law, the relationship between French law and Muslim law, the issues of polygamy, repudiation, child marriage that come up in different ways through these chapters. Like how did you think through structuring the book trying to move from 1830 to 1930 but also coming at these different pockets of sources and themes? Like how did how did that thinking work? Oh, it was really tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet.
1: You know, here again, I've you know I've suggested the way in which the um the 1870 moment, and I think maybe this is you know in part because I really you know began as a specialist of the of the Third Republic, mm-hmm. um was where I began, and those were actually the first chapters that I wrote, huh. and I'm actually just realizing this now, <laughs> <laughs> but the the first chapter that I wrote was actually the child marriage chapter. Huh. You know, and it is perhaps because it is the moment that I uh, when I began writing that I knew the best. And then I wrote outward from the middle. Really? I knew that that, that moment was the, the hinge of, uh, the argument. And, uh, then what I was doing was, uh, you know, writing the, um, in a sense, the before and the, the after. So, um, part of what I realized um, once I had the, um, the 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 core argument was what were the issues that, um, you know, or the questions that surge forth at um, uh, at specific moments. Mm-hmm. The um, the the question of uh, polygamy obviously persists throughout. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are ways in which it plays a particularly important role, uh, I argue, in the uh, uh, 1850s and uh, 60s as part of various schemes to reimagine, you know, kind of land and uh, family. And that's what gives rise ultimately to the, the Valnier Law. And then Child marriage surges to the uh, fore in, uh, in the 1870s and uh, 1880s, as precisely a way, and 1890s, as a way to kind of reassert the power of French jurisdiction over uh, Muslim personal status. Um, And then, you know, I have a chapter on, uh, on the problem of mixed marriage and the need Mm -hmm. to figure out whose law in a mixed marriage uh, should predominate and whether the patriarchal principle or the superiority of French woman's civil status uh, should prevail. Um, And then I also have the central chapter on the army sodomy scandal, Mm -hmm. which in a sense uh, you know, appears at the center of the book as a kind of uh, exception, and it is about its status as an exception. Yeah. And here, I sort of strategically place the chapter on the sodomy scandal, in which uh, an army captain is accused of having an affair with uh, both his, uh, or it's a captain in the spahi, both with his uh, subordinates in his uh, regiment uh and also with uh, uh, youth uh from the uh town in which the regiment is is housed in Medea. Mm-hmm. And uh part of what I'm doing there is juxtaposing the treatment of young women or girls in uh for, in forced marriages with the uh relative um a uh, uh, lack of interest, right in the captain's uh, relationship with this fifteen uh, year old uh, boy. Right.
0: Can we talk about sovereignty, Judith? Like it's in the title, <laughs> but also how you think about this book as thinking through the question of sovereignty in a few different ways, you know, whether it's with respect to French. Legal domination of Algeria, but also the kind of very physical and material domination of a lot of Algerian land. and then also that kind of notion of sovereignty as a way of characterizing, I don't know, patriarchal authority in a in a broader sense in either the French or the Muslim family. So that is a
1: fabulous question, and yet yeah, I'm not sure how we got to this point in the conversation without sort of tackling that um, that question. Head on. I mean, yes, it, well, I guess, you know, there, there are many there are many moving pieces in the in the book. But yeah, uh, thinking about the relationship between the, the problem of uh, sexual regulation and sovereignty is, again, I would say at the core of the book. Right, so the um, the problem is how could the French manage to uh, maintain, you know, a kind of integral conception or system of law while also managing difference, mm-hmm. right? Which is a, a historic, you know, uh, French problem, right. right? That is, you know, borne out in very kind of specific and particular ways in the Algerian context. Right, and that's in fact one of the reasons why I took up the um, the question of uh, French Algerian history in my own uh, work in the first place is thinking about what role the history of French Algeria has in and for uh, that problem. Right. Clearly, what I'm you know you know pursuing throughout is how the history of uh, the kind of legal government in Algeria poses. Uh, Repeated problems to the fantasy of kind of you know integral, um, uh, you know coherent, uniform and universal um, uh, French sovereignty, right? That mm-hmm. um, was uh, at the core of the project of, for example, the Napoleonic Civil Code, right? Which is clearly tested in diverse ways by the um, by the colonial project right, in which there is, you know, it wants an effort to to assert the supremacy of the civil code, but also a, um, uh, you know, a clear confrontation uh, with its limits and some of its own internal contradictions, uh, not least in the way in which uh, it inscribes uh, French women's subordination.
0: I want to come back to this book as a legal history and just what kind of legal historian you are Judith you have this great moment i think it's in the introduction where you you know talk about this as a a history of the the cultural life of algerian colonial law and i guess i want to ask you know how you get at that how you manage through your sources through the emphasis on particular subjects or you know voices i guess to access this broader you know, generous conception of a legal history that isn't just about the passage of legislation and the management of those things, but it's about thinking about law through colonial society. And also as a kind of piece of that, you know, how this then becomes a history that isn't just about what jurists are thinking, saying, wanting, doing, but that accesses uh, colonial, uh, well, access is Algerian experience and doesn't just ac- access Algerian male experience, but accesses the maybe harder to come by experiences of um, Algerian women.
1: So especially since um, you know I have a background, you know, not just in, you know, intellectual history but in literary mm-hmm. and cultural history more broadly. You know, my own inclination is to not cue exclusively to the legal discourses and texts themselves. Um, So that meant, you know, reading more broadly in, you know, different kinds of, uh, you know, sources, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it be, uh, you know, literature, journalism, uh, and of course, uh, archival sources that, you know, took me in, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, different directions, uh, including, uh, as you noted, trying to think about, you know, how and where the... um, uh the the women are in these uh in these stories mm-hmm. uh where they appear in the archive and uh where they disappear given the fact that uh their claims about their uh, uh victimization suffuse the um the, the legal uh, argumentation set forth by so many jurists right um So what is striking, and this is true, even, you know, just, you know, if you read the jurisprudence uh, itself, like women are, you know, you know, appearing everywhere, at least as, as litigants, notably they, uh, and I underscore this, they can appear on um, uh, all sides of cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, this is true, uh, for example, in um, the, you know, inheritance disputes that, um, uh that raise questions about the legitimacy of uh, polygamy, uh, in the kind of forced marriage or child marriage disputes, questions uh, surrounding marital uh, consent. So you know, they are clearly operating as kind of legal, you know, agents and advocates, you know, we sort of you know, see this throughout. Um, at the same time, Part of what I'm trying to do is, is also go beyond a story simply about legal pluralism. I'm interested in sort of supplementing an idea of people kind of operating out of their own, you know, kind of interests, material and otherwise, by, you know, taking advantage of the situations in courtrooms in order to understand, like, what are the imaginaries uh, that inform uh, their actions, mm-hmm. right? And so that's where, in a sense, uh, you know, another way in which we see kind of, you know, interest and imagination, right? Um, uh, The domain of fantasy uh, operating. Um, And, you know, that's, uh, you know, part of what I uh, try to do, even in my, you know, in in my treatment of uh, spare archives, right? So when I pose questions about, okay, well, um, you know, the, the women in the very first chapter who are seeking to uh, convert to Catholicism in order to escape uh, unhappy family situations. And what mm-hmm. did their stories tell us about uh, the possibilities opened uh, and, uh, and foreclosed by the chaotic initial years of the conquest? Um, or you know, importantly, the uh, silencing of uh, women who, in the 1870s, are writing in uh, to the uh, land sur- you know surveyor uh, commissions reclaiming property titles that uh, these commissaires have uh, denied them because it's difficult for uh, French officials to conceive that, you know, women, that women might be kind of independent, you know, have independent position, uh, possession of land. Mm -hmm. Right. And so part of what I'm trying to do is indeed, you know, kind of capture and weave uh, those voices in, in order to show how the projections and presumptions built into French fantasies of a Muslim family law, um, uh, ultimately silence and sideline those, you know, voices and positions.
0: Mm -hmm. Judith, I don't want to suggest for one second that there's not enough in this book, (laughs) um, or that, you know, you needed to do more, but I am interested to know or to learn about the decision to to do 100 years, you know, to span this period of time, you know, how you think of ending with 1930 and looking at the centenary, like how that works. And then I don't know if there are things that you see as openings at the other end of, you know, of the project, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I was interested in playing with the artifice of the centenary, Mm -hmm. right? And that is very clear, and that's how I frame the epilogue. Right. The idea is to foreground the the phantasmatic element of integrity that is built into the idea of a centenary, of the centenary that it was supposed to celebrate the high point of uh, colonization at the very moment in which, in fact its fissures were becoming increasingly visible. The, the fantasy of the centenary
0: mm-hmm.
1: encapsulated the very dynamic between, um, you know, the, the, the denigration or denial built into the idea that um, French Algeria could be held up as a sparkling, you know, an integrated success
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: at the very moment that, in fact, the fissures an impossibility of that project were becoming uh, increasingly palpable. Right. Right. And I really try to make it clear that um, you know that I I am not myself embracing this as as a right. uh, as an actual periodization. It is an attempt to kind of pose the problem of periodization itself. Yes. By highlighting the artifacts that was built into the that imagined periodization. As itself a colonial fantasy. Now, I also think that uh, there's a, a, a way in which uh, uh, the terrain of Algerian uh, and French Algerian politics enters just a whole new, you know, register. That it, there is a, a significant transformation in um, the, uh, uh, the the field. I said terrain before. I should say field of politics with the rise of that Lima movement in the in the nineteen thirties, That I also just didn't feel like I, you know, I don't have the the knowledge or that expertise, you know, including the Arabic in order to really give adequate treatment uh, to it. And mm-hmm. there's a way in which the um, the woman question does come to the fore in um uh whole new ways in the 1930s and uh I know that there are you know other scholars who are working on that now and will be able to shed light on it in ways that you know hopefully will be able to build on on my work uh but that I felt like um you know would be best left to other scholars uh, right. given the extent to which really the project of my book is is to foreground this tension or um, the the dynamic between the um, fantasy of the project of being able to uh, assert and achieve an effective colonial sovereignty. In the course of this imagined whole of an 100-year period, and the extent to which that fantasy, um, as all fantasies are, was based on, you know, repression and denial at once, uh, you know, military, economic and psychic. Yeah. Right? So that there is a way in which the the, the centenary allowed me to kind of recapitulate in you know miniature uh, dynamic that I'm tracing over the course of the whole book. And importantly, right, what I foreground is the extent to which this is something that young Algerian critics of the you know, fantasy of French colonial sovereignty are pointing to in their attacks on the centenary itself. Right. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a way in which um, I am able to fold that um, uh, that critique into the conclusion and uh, uh, epilogue uh, of the book.
0: So, Judith, let's uh, let's wind down by taking on secularism, <laughs> which I feel like we could talk about that for three days. But um, I guess to narrow that down a little bit, um, to ask you how you see this book as—I don't even know if I am narrowing it down when I ask this question—but to how you see this book as a contribution to that ever complicated field of you know the history and politics of laicite, yeah, from from whenever you want to start to, right. you know, tomorrow right. or next week or whatever. So, so yeah, I mean, obviously, we've we've touched on so many ways in which you know religion plays a role throughout the book. But yeah, how do you see this book as participating in that conversation, which is of course a conversation that's like ongoing, you know, here in 2021 um, when it comes to thinking about you know the legacies of this colonial context? So
1: thank you. Um, and yes, <laughs> um, these <laughs> questions, um, I, you know, have been on my mind. I mean, really since the, you know, I finished my, um, my first book, which, uh, in fact, ended with a discussion of Republican schools and the question of the headscarf affair. Mm-hmm. Um, Right. And so we're obviously part of what I was thinking about and with uh, throughout the time that I was working on on this one. Right. Thinking about the problem of like why, uh, how and why Islam um, seems to pose a challenge to and problem uh, for a Republican, you know, Sovereignty and uh, uh, and government, mm-hmm. and what you've noted um, in the you could say compulsive repetition in the in the discourse on laïcité, um mm-hmm. especially as it has emerged or reemerged, shall we say, since uh, nineteen eighty nine and the first headscarf affair, is precisely what the book is about: is how do we understand that um, that compulsive repetition? Right. Mm-hmm. And the way in which the book gets at that is to think about how the conflict is sort of uh, uh, baked in from the beginning and reproduces itself. Right. Right. So that we have the. Um, the 2004 uh, law on headscarves. We have the 2010, uh, you know, burka ban. We have the uh, resurgence of the, you know, burkini, um, you know, uh, you know, controversies uh, mm-hmm. in uh, whatever it was, you know, 2016. And now we have the, you know, the law reinforcing uh, Republican principles that targets things like, you know, polygamous foreigners and uh, virginity tests. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's a way in which the structure of these laws um, uh, is constantly, you know, reproducing the very problem that uh, they imagine uh, to be or or they're purportedly solving. Right. Mm -hmm. And they do so in ways that, um, in a sense, what they do is they um, uh, manage to, um, on the one hand, consolidate an idea of, uh, you know, secular and uh, integral, a phantasmatic secular and integral Republican uh, legality uh, citizen and subject, uh, but one who is uh, always uh, at threat, under threat, um, Mm or threatened by uh, an internal difference or dissolution, right? Right. And uh, part of what the book traces is, um, you could say, the, the psychic and libidinal dimensions <laughs> uh, of that, as well as the practical, mm-hmm. uh, the practical dimensions, right? Because that, you know, what they do is they underwrite uh, and uh, underscore the necessity for, you know, ever new tactics of legal surveillance and government. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that we see this, right? It's, I mean, it becomes. Uh, you know, it produces the need to speak ever more about the problem of uh, uh, Muslim difference, I, and um, it's you know the, the kind of the reproductive hypothesis, right, where mm-hmm. it's producing ever more discourse on the problem, even as uh, it reports to be targeting it. The 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 goal is not actually. To uh, um, to to dissolve it, but actually uh, to continue to it's it's generative, right? It's a it's a it's a generative form of repression that underwrites um, uh, you know surveillance.
0: I think for me, reading the book, I you know we say this all the time that the world needs historians <laughs> to illuminate these things that people continue to talk about and fight about in 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 the present and i reading this book i was really s- just over and over again struck by you know its varied resonances with more recent debates like in the last couple of years but also yeah reaching back to 1989 so you describe the project have described the project as a history of the present. And, you know, could you tell us in relationship to what we've just been talking about, but kind of more broadly, like, what is that, what does that mean for you methodologically and in terms of your approach as a, as a researcher and writer? I think that this
1: is, um, uh, this is, you know, I think on the, the, the blurb or cover back cover of the book. Right. Um, the, the history of the present perspective that I hope to provide is to trouble the idea uh, that um, in, in a sense, uh, we know why um, when we think Muslim law, we think about uh, the family and a particularly uh, patriarchal structure of the family. Hmm. right And I am uh, providing a, a kind of back history um, uh, of the Uh, emergence of that uh, uh, association in the uh, French legal imaginary and in French law in order to you know, and to to demonstrate its deep imbrication in a violent uh, and, uh, you know, expropriative colonial history in ways that can then help us to identify the ways in which that fantasy is uh invested and mobilized for you know in tactical uh uh and you know political reasons uh in the present.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, having asked you that question, let me now uh transition goofily awkwardly to the future. What are you working on now? So, I am
1: um uh, basically I you know <laughs> Um, so as you noted, like I end with the centenary, and now yeah. I'm basically um, I am skipping over uh, the um, the uh, the last 32 years, or depending on how you want to uh, date it, uh, sure. uh, of, uh, of French Algeria, supposedly, purportedly French Algeria, uh, to work on the uh, basically family law conflicts after decolonization. Um, So exploring how, you know, in a sense, what happens when uh, a Muslim law status, personal status, family law um, that had been a subordinated colonial um, status uh, becomes, uh, uh, you know, and under the aegis of an independent Algerian state, exceeds to sovereign equality and how then uh, family law conflicts between uh, France and Algeria play out uh, after decolonization and their deep imbrication in the uh, unsettled uh, character of the um, post-colonial um collaboration or cooperation uh, that emerges out of the framework of the Evian Evian Accords. More specifically, what I'm looking at are basically uh, uh, divorce and custody uh, disputes, uh, Mm. particularly between uh, French women and Algerian men, in which uh, French courts give custody to French mothers and Algerian courts give uh, uh, custody to uh, Algerian men. And so you have the a, a kind of pure conflict of law uh situation in which these cases become um you know you know diplomatic and uh emotional uh ping pong balls uh, as uh, one contemporary writer describes them um and basically i'm focusing on them as a, a kind of microcosm of the gendered sexual economic and political tensions that persist uh, between France and Algeria, um, arguably uh, one could say to this day, right? And we see this mm-hmm. obviously with the, um, uh, the recent publication of the Staha report and the question of the desirability or not of an attempt to uh, reconcile
0: uh, mm-hmm. French
1: uh, and Algerian memory, and um, part of what I'm interested in exploring is the uh, torn uh contradictory uh, uh, and challenged position of the children uh, who are um, uh, you know uh, uh, you know emerge out of uh, these you know are part of these families and how they um, at the time and since uh, kind of no- negotiate. Uh, you know, at once, you know, legally, uh, you know, a- emotionally, culturally, psychically, um, mm. uh, being between the, um, being between the two, uh, the two nations. What's been great about it is that I've, you know, I have uh, gotten access to the, um, you know, kind of legal dossiers, but um, have also begun to be in conversation with, uh, with Franco-Algerian children themselves and like, so the the new, a- very new aspect of the of uh, the project for me is this, um, you know, kind of oral historical, oral historical dimension. So that's my, you know, if the last book, you know, did a, you know, a lot new in working on legal history, this, um, this book is gonna think about uh, kind of oral history and relationship, relationship to law, I mean, oral history and like also um, the kind of cultural production and um, uh, thinking about how some of these children are kind of seeking out, you know, alternatives to the framework of law right mm mm-hmm. is uh is also part of what I'm um I'm going to be uh going to be exploring and like you know kind of cultural predict- production uh in contrast to uh in contrast to the um the, the the legal framework of struggling sovereigns
0: well it sounds like an amazing project and I hope when it's ready, no, no pressure, you just finished this book, that, that you'll come back and, and talk to me about it on the podcast. Judith, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and for writing this wonderful book. Well, thank you so much, Roxanne. And I just
1: want to say uh, thank you for today and for all of the wonderful interviews that you do, since I uh, enjoy on a regular basis being able to learn from you and others, uh, thanks to your you know, intrepid uh, and energetic uh, podcasting presence.